Please turn with me to the book of Ruth. So tonight we are going to be in the book of Ruth. Uh, Richard is not able to make it this evening uh, to continue in the book of Acts. And I think what we might do, one thing that Richard had talked about was doing every other Wednesday. Here in the book of Ruth, this is one of those, of course, small books of the Bible, four chapters. It's often uh, looked at in, in, the, in view of this great love story with Boaz and Ruth. It is set in the time of the judges. And in the time of the judges, when you have so much going on, which we'll talk about a little bit anyway, you have this certain account um, among a woman named Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, their sons, and then their son's wives, one of them being Ruth. This is, this is an account that we need to understand is not just a love story. We look at it and we can glean some things from it and all of that. Uh, but this is a book about God's faithfulness. It is a book about God's providence. It is a book that is really... Uh, more emphasis, there's more emphasis given in this book probably um, on David than there is with Boaz and Ruth. This book doesn't end with, and they lived happily ever after, in the climax of the book. This book climaxes with David. So there are some theologians that would say that this book is indeed Davidic in nature, and Perhaps it may even be a defense of the house of David. Some think that this book was written either by Samuel or later on in the reign of King Josiah. Uh, He reigned from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. We remember that during the reign of Josiah, uh, there was a great revival that had occurred. They found the books of the law, and so they began to read the law. And Josiah made many, many reforms tore down the high places where Baal was worshipped or where Ashtaroth was worshipped. One of them also uh, of the high places and the altars that he tore down was that of Kamash, which was the god of the Moabites. So some think that maybe during this whole revival era, this reform that Josiah was, was doing, that some had came to him and tried to make a defense of serving the other gods, just one theory, and said that, you know, you have Moabite blood in you and... Since you have Moabite blood in you, uh, you should honor the God of the Moabites, which is Kamash. So some would take it to be maybe a defense of the house of David, but the house of David is indeed in view. As this book ends, it ends with a genealogy that Matthew and Luke are going to pick right up and are going to implement and apply it to uh, the Messiah. It is indeed, again, a book about God's faithfulness, that in a time of great unfaithfulness, in the time of Israel's history in which they would serve God, and then they would turn to idols. God would allow another nation to conquer them. They would cry out to the Lord. They would turn back, and it was just a cycle that just kept going on in the book of Judges. 
God is being faithful. God is fulfilling his purposes. God is indeed bringing judgment, but even in judgment amidst an unfaithful people, he is still bringing about his perfect will. And he's showing this by this account, taking it to David. So Dr. Daniel Block, who is an Old Testament scholar, he says those very things. The book's interest in the house of David may be best interpreted against the backdrop or renaissance of the dynasty under the reign of Josiah. So we need to understand that this book is not just a love story. This book isn't about you know, Ruth and how wonderful that she is or Boaz. It's a book about God's faithfulness that's leading down to David and his bringing about the Messiah as he promised. So this is more of an introduction into this book, but if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are looking at chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 5. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Milan and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives us, knowing that in our time in which we see so much sin and wickedness, that there is always hope and there is always a confidence that we can have in you knowing that you are clearly at work bringing about your perfect will. Father, encourage our hearts and strengthen us for the days to come. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, to appreciate some of the things that we're finding in this book, we need to see, or at least to go over a little bit of what was happening in the days of the judges, as this book is said in the days of the judges, or as he says here, when the, ju when the judges governed and there was a famine in the land. Now, if you look back at Judges chapter 21 and read verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this was the days of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the time, of course, before the monarchy. Uh, this is a time in which God would raise up judges, often to deliver his people, but to judge his people. And you see this cycle, this continued cycle of serving God, of forsaking God, serving God, forsaking God. In chapter 2 of Judges, this is after the death of Joshua. Here's what we read in verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went... The hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will, not, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So that's a good summary of the days of the judges. Serve the Lord, turn to idols, turn to the Ashtaroth and the Baals and the Kamash, all of these other foreign gods of the surrounding nations. God would have pity on them when they called upon him. He would raise up a judge to deliver them. He left these particular nations there, as he says, at least the remnants of these nations, in order to test Israel to see if they would indeed serve him. So this is the context in which you find this account of of Ruth. There is no king in Israel. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Whatever it is that they determine to be right, that's what they're doing. And you can look at this as well and see that whatever is occurring here is occurring in a time of judgment as we read that there's a famine in the land. If you look back at Leviticus 26 or even Deuteronomy chapter 28, one of the curses that would come upon Israel because of their unfaithfulness was famine. So there's a famine in the land. This is indicator of God's judgment. They're living in the days of the judgment uh, of the judges, which was a continuous cycle of judgment, grace, judgment, grace. So here's where we find this account. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and yet you find that God is actively at work here. There is something that God is doing to bring about the greatest blessing for mankind and to bring about his promise that he had made centuries earlier, and he's doing it in the midst of a time in which most people are being unfaithful to him. And that is an important thing to just reflect upon. In the time of, of great unfaithfulness, 
perhaps among the majority, who knows? We don't really have a number here. And God is even bringing judgment that God is actively working to bring about his purpose. And I say that, and I say that, that we need to reflect upon that because we give up way too easy when it comes to what's going on in our own nation. We say our nation is done for, it's headed to destruction, there is no turning it back, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and sometimes we don't fail to just stop for a minute and think, okay, what were the days of the judges like? What were these other times in which we find uh, in the history of Israel, what were they like? Especially after the monarchy, after you have so many kings, especially the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom didn't have any good kings. They all had evil kings. And what were they doing? They were sacrificing their children. They were sacrificing their children to idols. There was one particular idol. I can't remember if it was Molech, but the statue itself had its arms out like this. And they would take their babies, and it was a fire that was built underneath it, and set their baby on it and let their baby die in this kind of a manner, burning to death. When you think of how evil that that was, most people in that day would have looked and said, we're done for. It's over. And yet it wasn't. Why? Why was it not done for? Because here's something to keep in mind. Is that Christ came for the nations. And that includes ours. The promise of Abraham is blessing to the nations, which includes ours. And our Lord, in all of his sovereignty and power, is able to turn any nation that he wants at his appointed time back to himself, which we see over and over and over again. So that's intended to give us some encouragement. We look today and we, I think in some ways we're maybe a little bit on the prideful side because we think that what's going on in our own time is worse than any other time in history. Surely the things of the past can't be as bad as what it is now. And is that really true? No, that's not true. Again, just look to the scripture. See the times that, that was going on back in the scripture. Well, it keeps getting worse and it keeps getting worse. Well, God said it was going to get worse. He, under judgment, it's going to get worse. When he hands them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not natural. This is a judgment of God. And... When, when we talk about our nation being under the judgment of God, I don't mean that there's an impending doom that's getting ready to occur. But we do recognize the judgment of God that is upon our own nation, which is exactly what we find in Romans 1. But what happens after judgment? Mercy, grace, restoration. That's why we shouldn't lose hope. If man did what was right in his own eyes, as what we're reading here, that means that they were not following the law of God. They did not walk in the manner as their fathers did. Perhaps it was the very next generation after Joshua died. Who knows? 
We look back and we say, how can something change so quickly? You know, some say, look at 50 years ago, what were things like? Or 20 years ago, and look at it now. Well, it doesn't take very long for it to, to go the way that it has. It only takes one generation that is forsaking the Lord to be under the judgment of God. But this was the same as it was then, under the judgment of God. A famine is in the land. If they were serving God faithfully, there wouldn't be a famine. You read of that also in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So here's what we find. It came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. <clears throat> So here's some other indicators that perhaps there's some unfaithfulness going on here. You have this man of Bethlehem, Elimelech, as we will find out. He is leaving Israel as it is under God's judgment, and he's going to sojourn in the land of the enemy, Moab. And he's going to take his wife and his two sons, and that's where... That's where he is going in order to avoid the famine. Now, one of the things that you find that he's not doing, Elimelech is not keeping his family there in order to call upon the Lord and to, to petition God for mercy and grace on behalf of the land itself. Perhaps he's thinking, okay, well, if judgment is here, then we'll just... Go over there and avoid it. The idea of the word sojourn helps to at least have some understanding that he didn't intend to stay there very long. One theologian says the narrator's choice of the verb, which is translated to sojourn, suggests that he intended to wait out the famine in the land of Moab and to return to Bethlehem when it was over. But what we find then, and there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns here. And sometimes we have to try to form uh, an opinion, an informed opinion based on what we're reading. But since he is not one that is crying out to the Lord or calling upon the Lord for mercy and grace, and he goes to the land of the enemy in order to just avoid it until it's over, perhaps it tells us where his heart is. And his heart is not in line with the Lord. He's going to die soon. And that's what we read in verse 2. This man, Elimelech, he dies. He goes to the land of Moab, he takes his family, and he dies. According to Jewish tradition, the Lord had killed him because he went to the land of Moab. Instead of calling upon the Lord. Maybe this was an indicator that he was unfaithful to the Lord as well. Judgment is not intended to, to make us just try to find a way to avoid it. It's intended, chastisement is intended for his people to turn back. That's the purpose of being disciplined, is to turn back, not to figure out a way to avoid it. And we find that Elimelech is indeed trying to do that. He is unfaithful. He's bringing his family into the land of the enemy to avoid God's judgment and yet, even though he had a certain plan, 
God seemed to have frustrated his plan. He goes there, he ends up remaining there, and he dies. Not only does he die, but then his two sons, as they grow older, they take for themselves Moabite women, which perhaps also seems to imply that they were unfaithful to the Lord. It could be, could be an indicator. Uh, we find a certain uh, couple of verses in Deuteronomy, which speaks of not allowing a Moabite to come into the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation as they were an enemy of God. Another passage of scripture, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and I'll read this to you, and I'll show you what the, the one particular theologian had commented on it. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, and this is the, the Canaanites. This is, if you go back to verse 1, this is the nations that are being dr driven out. This is the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than Israel. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Now, the theologian points out that the Moabites are not mentioned here. But he does say the Moabites are not listed with these Canaanite nations, but since they were the people of Kamash, a foreign god, the spirit of the law would have included them. That's a possibility. That's not set in stone. It's just a possibility. That the law there in Deuteronomy 7 would have covered that as well. Uh, Moab was an enemy of Israel. It was the Moabites that caused Israel to sin as they're going into the promised land or on their way to the promised land. They stood in their way. The king of Moab had called for Balaam to, to prophesy against them. Balaam couldn't do it, and so they figured out another way in order to cause them to stumble, which was to send their daughters to them and cause them to act unfaithfully to the Lord. You have these two that take wives of the Moabites. The first man that is mentioned here is Milan, uh, which his name means sickly or sickness. Then you have his brother Kilion, which means finished or one who is spent, which perhaps gives us indicators too that, uh, or at least indicators of their fate. These two take Moabite women as their wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived in the land about 10 years. Neither one of them had sons. Neither one of their wives were able to apparently uh, have children. They were there for 10 years, which is also a sign of God's judgment. So all of this is to say that you have so much unfaithfulness going on, not only among the father, among the nation, among the sons, and yet in the midst of all of this, God's plan is not being thwarted one bit. It isn't happening. He is using even these in order to bring about his, his intended will. And we read of uh, Proverbs chapter 16, that the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Nothing is being thwarted here. 
God is, and actually because God is inflicting judgment upon them, God is even acting in faithfulness. Because the covenant that he had made with his people, if you obey, you will have blessing. If you don't, you will have curses. And this is what it's going to be. And God is being faithful and carrying out those very things that he said he was going to do. And so it's not as if there's a time of unfaithfulness in Israel. Everything's going haywire. So many people in rebellion and God is just trying to, have an, to, to bring everybody in. Trying to fix it. It was never lost. Nothing was ever lost to him. Everything is going according to plan. That's why there is no plan B. It's only plan A. Well, we could have done this, but since this occurred, then God had to bring about a different one. Different plan. Different idea. There's only plan A. And this is showing us the very power of God. Again, we're looking at God's providence. We're looking at his faithfulness. We see his power in all of this, that he's able to control all of this, even in the time of unfaithfulness. And he is still bringing about the greatest blessing to the world by preserving the line, by bringing it about at his appointed time, there's so much going on here. But again, it is, it is intended for us as to be a, a great encouragement. To be a source of strength. God is faithful to bring about exactly what he said he was going to do. And it doesn't matter what the state of the nation is. He's still going to do it. Because he can. And he will. This is, a, this is a situation in which we find Naomi, though we see God's providence, his faithfulness, he's bringing about a great purpose, we still we, we look at this with Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And you can, you can see perhaps that even the author of the book of Ruth is, is trying to give us that understanding that... that she is in great turmoil, in great agony. She, <clears throat> it says that it, call, it calls her, her sons, her sons in verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. But then in verse 5, after they both die, it says, And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And maybe it's giving us that, that understanding that this is a woman who is in deep mourning. She is mourning over the loss of her children, regardless if they were faithful to God or they weren't. They were still her children, of her husband. And she is in great mourning. She's left with nothing. She's a widow. All she has is her two daughters-in-law, what is she to do now? She has no one to care for her. We don't even know if she had an occupation that she could do anything to provide for herself. We don't know. But in the midst of her suffering, on an individual level, 
not only of judgment on the grand level of the nation, of a family altogether, but individually, though she is indeed suffering and in great pain, her pain was not in vain. For God was doing something. You, know, you see some similarities with, with Naomi and with Job. We look at Job and, and we see what all happened to Job and his family and all of this terrible things that had occurred. But there are some similarities here with Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's lost her, her two sons. She has no way to care for herself, maybe. What is she to do? We're not told exactly why all these things occurred. We're trying to form uh, an informed opinion based on perhaps what's going on. But we don't know whether or not her husband and her children were unfaithful. We're gleaning from the text some clues to come up with that. We're not really told why all these things are happening. And Job, Job, we can at least come to a better conclusion, especially when you get to the end of the book. We know why these things are happening because God and Satan had this conversation. I can make him curse you. And what is God proving? My elect is my elect and they'll never be lost. Have at it. We're not really told why this is happening. But here is something that Naomi does here. She hears that God has shown grace to his people. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. So maybe this is one of those instances in which they're in Moab, Israel's being unfaithful, maybe at the same time that this is going on in the lives of, of Naomi and Elimelech, that over in Israel God has raised up a judge in order to deliver his people because they have once again called upon his name and repented to turn to him. Well, she gets the news, and the news is God has visited his people. And that kind of language is implying that he has given his attention back to his people. He is once again caring for his people. He is showing them favor once again. And why would he do that? Again, if you're in Israel at the time, and you're seeing nothing but turmoil and judgment, and you know that it's from the Lord because you have the book of the law, which is saying exactly that, you think that you're done for. We're done. God is bringing judgment on us. We've been unfaithful. We've acted corruptly. But what is it that they begin to do? They don't throw up their hands and say, we're out of here. No, they begin to pray, and they're calling upon the name of the Lord. And you can just imagine this very thing, that it's not just an individual over here who's keeping silent before everybody else and just praying to the Lord, what do you think is happening here? Perhaps going to others and saying, we've acted corruptly. We need to pray and we need to ask God to forgive us and to heal our land. Then what are they doing? They're going to others. We've acted corruptly. We need to pray and ask God to heal our land. And so you have almost an evangelizing kind of thing that's going on here to turn people back to the Lord, His covenant people. And because God is faithful... And because perhaps God delights in the prayers of his people, even in the midst of unfaithfulness, 
he gives his attention back and looks upon them favorably once again in order to visit them, to show care and concern for them. And he does so because of his faithful people calling upon his name, praying to him, once again delighting in him, repenting of their sin, obeying. Is our nation so far gone that God's people can't pray and ask God to heal our land? Is it so far gone? I don't think so. Well, surely everything's getting ready to come to its climax. Everything's working into culminating and we just need to throw up our hands and just remove ourselves from, from the public square or whatever it is and just let it go. It's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. I don't think that's the right approach. I don't think that that's showing uh, concern for the nation. I don't think that's relying on God's long-suffering and his faithfulness. We don't just throw up our hands and say, it's done. You know what you keep doing? You keep praying. And you keep sharing the gospel. And you keep obeying. And you keep worshiping and praising and thanking him. And interceding on behalf of the nation. Intercessory prayer is something that we indeed see within the scripture. We don't know how many were calling upon the name of the Lord. But there was such unfaithfulness that God brought judgment upon it. How many does it take for God to show favor again? We don't know. But we shouldn't lose hope because we think there are only few. God is long-suffering. He is gracious, and we need to quit reading the scripture through the lens of a newspaper. The newspaper doesn't determine what is true. It's God's word alone which gives us those understandings. Again, looking back at the promise of God, God had promised through Abraham the nations are going to be blessed. He had promised when Jacob blesses his sons that the line of the Messiah is going to be through Judah. He promises to raise up a prophet like Moses. He brings his people into the promised land as he promised. And God is acting even in the midst of this wicked time in Israel's history. Now, here's some things to consider. I don't want to make it out that America is God's covenant people in this kind of a manner. But all nations, all nations are accountable to the Lord. 
So in that sense, you can say that all nations are in covenant with God because when God brings judgment, why is he bringing judgment? Because they have broken his law. They forsook his law. And it's the standard of the law that is being held up to show that they are under judgment. All nations are accountable to him. But we have those sayings within the scripture too. Blessed is that nation who calls upon the Lord, whose God is the Lord, whose God is Yahweh. Blessed is that nation, he says. So we're not necessarily, I'm not trying to make it out again, like we're the covenant people as Israel was in that time, but I am pointing out that there is, there is a, there is a covenant that is between us and our Lord, between all people and our Lord. And the nations are accountable. All nations are accountable. Absolutely. And if all nations are accountable to the Lord, and the basis of that is his law, then when that nation turns to the Lord, then what then occurs? Healing? Restoration? Peace? Blessing? Is that so far-fetched? No. And it is something that we should look forward to. Regardless if you think it happens before Christ comes or after Christ comes, the fact of the matter is, is that Christ is coming for the nations. All nations. And in one sense, and this is probably more of a personal thing, But when you look at John 3.16, right? God so loved the world. There's often times in which we narrow that down to simply refer to those that are in the nations that God has chosen. And there's truth to that. There's truth to say that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and at the time the Jews think that they're the only ones that the Messiah is coming for, and Jesus is just maybe making... The statement to say, it's not just you, it's the nations. Or it could be as well that perhaps he is in fact talking about the world. In a general sense, the entirety of his creation, that God loves the entirety of his creation, that he sends Christ. Because it's not just man that is being redeemed, it is all creation. Because of Christ. And so if God loves the world in that kind of a manner. Then we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say. Let it be what it'll be. But oh Lord pray. Let us pray. And ask the Lord to have mercy. And grace. And to heal. And to show favor once again. And God does show grace. We think maybe our nation don't deserve it. Think of how many babies we murder every year. Maybe we don't. But no one does. So does that mean that he would not heal our land? Not cause a great revival to occur? You know, when we see, when we look back in history, these are the things that we should think of that give us hope for our own nation. 
I don't, sometimes I don't understand the mentality of just letting it all go. It's too far gone. Because you think about some of the great revivals that had happened in history. You think of the Reformation. We always look back to the Reformation because we're Reformed people. Oh, we think of Luther and nailing the 95 Thesis and all of this sort of thing. And we, we yes. But that was a great revival that occurred in the midst of a corrupt church that was ruling over quite a bit of the known world. And how was it all turned around? Because an Augustinian monk thought, hmm. Those indulgences just don't seem right. Let's have a debate. And then what happens? An amazing revival occurred that spread from Germany into England and to France into Switzerland, on and on. How? Because when God works and God is moving in a Real revival? That's when things really do turn around. Not a planned revival. We're going to have revival next September. I hope the Lord shows up for that because we intend on having some things changed. <laughs> a tent, and don't forget the wood chips for the floor. But no, think of the Great Awakening. You think of the colonies in the time of the Great Awakening. They become just calloused, maybe? Unmoving? And then because of Edwards, the Wesleys, and Whitfield, you had a great revival that occurred in the colonies. Such powerful preaching. In those days, so much so that when you had George Whitfield, probably the greatest evangelist ever, second to the Apostle Paul, maybe, as he is preaching in Jonathan Edwards' church, Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, the great philosopher, sits on the front pew and is weeping at the powerful preaching of George Whitfield. Why? Because when God empowers his word, it changes hearts. And no heart of stone can withstand the power of God. And so here in this book, and I know this is more of an introduction into this book. But these are some things to help lay the groundwork. And to help give us some encouragement too. Our nation is not so far gone. The people that we love are not so far gone. That they cannot be saved. And that's why you never give up. You never stop. You keep loving them. You keep preaching to them. You keep sharing the gospel to them. You keep presenting the truth of God before them. Because there's always hope. Our nation, it's not so far gone. The people we love are not so far gone. Because we see passages like this that tell us differently. And to teach us that God is faithful. God's providence is working even in the time of unfaithfulness. We see God's power. We see God's patience and God's long-suffering. God is indeed patient. 
And God is gracious. That's the other, that's the other thing. God is gracious to an undeserving people. An undeserving people like us. Pick a place around the world. They're all undeserving. But God is gracious. And the power of God when he moves, none can hold it back. No matter who's in power, no matter how many ungodly celebrities like to voice their opinion on whatever, it doesn't matter. And imagine this. And ask, the, ask yourself this question. If you believe in the power of God, and you believe that the gospel is the power of God, as he says, how often do you pray for those celebrities? Or how often do you pray for your leaders? Imagine if God were to move in a mighty way to convert them. Can he do it? Absolutely. He can. Your prayers are not in vain. Your faithfulness to God is not in vain. So dear friends, be encouraged. Let your heart be comforted with passages like this to see that as they were so unfaithful to God, yet God had mercy on them. God extended grace to them. He brought judgment but because of the faithfulness of his people and working through the means of his people, he brings healing and restoration. Do your prayers, do you think that your prayers have any effect? Maybe that's one of the problems. Maybe we think it, it does no good. Our prayers are just ineffective. Do you recognize, as, we, as I mentioned on Sunday, that God uses a means in order to bring about his will? And we are privileged, all God's people are privileged, in order to be part of the means because of God using the prayers of his people. R.C. Sproul would say it this way. He says, does prayer change God's mind? No. But does prayer change things? Yes. Quick example. So in... Um, Exodus 32, I mentioned it on Sunday, didn't explain. Exodus 32, Exodus 33, into 34. You have Moses who's up on the mountain with the people, or excuse me, up on the mountain with the Lord. The people are waiting for him. They don't know what's become of him. And so they go to Aaron. They say, make us a God that will go before us. So Aaron fashions the golden calf, all of that. There's a couple of days that go by here. Meanwhile, Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. And because the Lord is all-knowing, he knows exactly what's happening. From the first time that whoever it was came to Aaron and said, Make us a God that will go before us, the Lord was well aware of what was happening. But he didn't say anything. He still continued his fellowship with Moses. And then even when Aaron fashions the golden calf, the Lord is well aware that he just made a golden calf. Even when Aaron says, and then 
Tomorrow, we will have a feast. And the Lord is aware that the next day, they're going to have this feast. And then the next day, it occurs. They have this great feast, and it says that the people rose up to play. Which some of that language insinuates perhaps that there was some sexual immorality that was occurring there. And God was well aware. But it wasn't until the sin had made its complete end that he says to Moses, Your people have corrupted themselves. Leave me alone that I consume them in my anger. And the whole time, he knew what was happening. But what did he do? What was he doing? He says to Moses, I'm going to consume them and I'll start over with you. But then what happens? Moses prays unto the Lord and he intercedes on behalf of the people. And then what happens? The Lord relents from bringing or consuming them. What, what just happened? Did the Lord change his mind? We know very clearly that the Lord doesn't change his mind. We know that. The Lord had threatened judgment, but he did not decree judgment. But he used the prayer of his servant Moses in order to once again show grace to them. Moses was the means that the situation changed and God showed mercy. How do we know he wasn't going to do it? Because God had already said that the Messiah is coming, coming through Abraham. He's coming through Judah. He wasn't coming through Levi. Moses was of the tribe of Levi. If God had consumed the people and started over with Moses, he would have nullified the promises that he had given before. So he used the prayer of his servant Moses, interceding on behalf of the people, in order to show grace and to once again show favor to his people, to forgive their iniquity. And it goes on further, of course. Not only does the Lord relent from bringing judgment, he says, I'm, I'm not going to consume them, but I'm not going with them. And Moses intercedes again. Oh, Lord, go with us. Okay, I'll go. And then, as Moses needs an even greater assurance, he says, show me your glory. And so the Lord says that I will be compassionate on whom I'll be compassionate. I'll be merciful to whom I am merciful. And you think he's alluding back to Exodus 3. When Moses asked, what's his name? I am that I am. And he says, I will show mercy upon whom I show mercy. And he is showing us, he's showing Moses that the assurance that Moses desired was not based in the people, but in himself alone. And so this whole ordeal takes place that God's going to show the greatest uh, demonstration of his glory and of his character and all of this because of the prayer of his servant. God uses a means to bring about His will, and that means is the prayers of His people. So don't think that your prayers are in vain or your prayers are ineffective. God is using your prayers in order to bring about His will. So keep praying. Keep trusting. Be confident in the Lord. It may not happen in our lifetime. And in fact, if you go through the book of Judges, sometimes when Israel was unfaithful, He would allow another nation to conquer them for seven years, sometimes eight years. Sometimes 18 years, sometimes 20 years, 
One in particular was 40 years. We don't know how long it lasts. But we know the means in which God brings about mercy and grace, and that's through the faithfulness of his people and the prayers of his people. So don't give up hope yet. Our Lord is a mighty, mighty God. And he is a gracious God too. So let us be reflecting upon those great truths that we find within passages like this. And then we'll get more into the book itself as we continue on. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that this this passage indeed shows us who, who you are, some of your character, some of your attributes that we can be encouraged in our hearts. We pray, Father, that that we would continue to do what we know to be right, not to give up, not to already be defeated in our prayers before we ever ask anything, but to, to knock, to seek you out, to continually knock on the doors of heaven with our prayers. Father, we pray indeed for our nation. We pray that you would, that you would turn it back to you, it, you would move in the hearts of, of the people, bringing about such change. We can't do it. There's no method that can be employed to do it. It has to be you. It has to be your spirit. And so we pray that you would move mightily. We pray for our loved ones, for our friends, those whom we love dearly, that our hearts just yearn for. We pray for them. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would show them mercy. And grant them salvation. Grant them faith to believe upon Christ. We know that you can. And Father, if it be your will, we pray indeed that you would use us to accomplish it, if possible. Father, we thank you so much for the gift that you've given us in Christ. May we never keep it to ourselves, but to declare it to others as well. We love you. Because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. And thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.